Welcome back, everyone. This is the last, the third in a series, a sermon series I've been doing I call Faithful Together, where we've been looking at the topic of family in the Bible, which is, a, I know, a huge topic. I've decided to keep it to three for the sake of brevity. The first week, if you remember, we talked about Jesus. So we started there, we talked about Jesus and how he envisioned creating a new kind of family, a new kind of community around himself, involving people who followed the word of God and followed the will of God. It wasn't a blood family, it was a spiritual community gathered together. We looked the next week at more of the New Testament on the Apostle Paul and some of his more egalitarian views. We are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and then how those views were later often reversed uh, a next generation in the books at the end of the Bible. Uh, and now, I thought I'd save the oldest for last. We're gonna go step back into the Old Testament where marriage and family are very different than what you see now today, uh, and very different even from the way Jesus and Paul envisioned it. Uh, it's a very different animal from what we're used to in the West. So if you were to imagine that you could get in a time machine and go back to ancient Israel, say you went back to the time of Moses, uh, maybe 1,000 years BC, and uh, you were able to get uh, a couple, a married couple from that time, and you'd bring them here to America, they would find, as they look around, they'd find a lot of stuff very confusing, of course. And I don't just mean that, you know, we have flying machines and people who listen to Justin Bieber willingly. Um, I mean, in terms of marriage, a lot of things would be totally foreign to them. First, you would have the question uh, of how you get married. So if the married couple from back then was talking to a married couple today, the, one of the first questions would be, well, how did you meet? Uh, for them, for those from the Old Testament, it would be that their dads met together without them and traded money or land uh, or some sort of property, and they sealed the deal with an animal sacrifice and a party. And most of the time, you would not have picked your spouse you might not even ever have seen your spouse. Uh, then, again, if you're in Old Testament times, there's the whole moving in thing. You only did that after you were married, which was probably around 15 or 16 years old, and the bride would be ridden on her donkey horse, whatever, over to the husband's family compound and left there. And then she would meet her husband there for the first time, and then that family would throw a big party for about four to five days. And the whole idea of finding your spouse, like we do, of just leaving home and picking someone yourself, and then telling your parents after the fact, that would be unthinkable. It was unimaginable. I mean, I've known couples, I've known couples who've, who've said they've deliberately had their parents not meet until the wedding so there wasn't a family fight. So that at the wedding rehearsal, the bride's family and the groom's family would meet each other. Unthinkable back then. Then, of course, you have the whole issue of raising kids. How do you do that? Well, the women then uh, might have been only about 15 or 16. They would have had kids straight through into their early 20s. 
Might have had, you might have had 10 kids, you might have had three or four survive, maybe five survived. It was not, uh, it, 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 it was, there was a lot of that going on. It was not pleasant. Uh, but you might have been only a teenager, but you were not expected to raise the kids on your own. There would have been, you would have lived with this husband's family and his family compound. And there would have been grandmas and aunts and sisters and extended family all around there to help you raise the kids. You could be a teen mom back then and not know how to raise a kid because your family would show you how and maybe even do most of it. The family had a vested interest in you succeeding as a parent, so they would help you out a ton. You made the babies and your mom and grandma would kind of raise them and they'd show you what to do. And while you had very little choice over your life as a woman back then, you were also not on your own to have to figure all this out and carry all the weight of parenting yourself. It's one of the defining features, I think, of middle-class American households today. And that is that we really have to do a lot of this ourselves. You know, often, what do we do? We leave home to go to school. Then we move again to find work. And then we, and we do that, and then we meet someone at some time, we get married, and then we probably have to move again for work. And then we have our, our nuclear family in this strange town far away from our relatives where we don't know anybody unless we go out and meet them at work or church or something. And we have to do all the income getting while doing all the childcare and do that all ourselves. And it's a lot to bear. Uh, and it's a, lot, it's a lot of burden to try to do for just one or two people. And yes, uh, the Old Testament way can be very stifling if you're a woman who has plans and dreams and wants to do a career and uh, all that good stuff. But that was not anything that women in the Old Testament times could do. They got married, they made babies, they raised babies, and when their kids had kids, they hung around and raised those babies. You had little choice, but you were not very often left alone or without support. The couple from the Old Testament, they would have looked at us and wondered how we ever managed to stay married and get it all done. I, I could just picture them, you know, you mean you make all your own money and you do all the childcare and you work a job and you spend every Sabbath traveling around the country on sports games and you have nobody around to help you do this. And the modern family would go, yeah, that, that's kind of it. And then throw in that your spouse is supposed to be there for all this emotional support, personal fulfillment. That would have been totally alien to them too. The idea that your spouse is a friend that you turn to was a pretty rare idea. Marriage back then was an arrangement. It was an arrangement for making children between families so they would have heirs to protect their property and their inheritance, to promote the family line, to increase honor and prestige to the family and provide workers often for the farm. And the men hung around with the men during the day and worked and did their man things. And the women hung around the villages and did their women things and their women's work. And they met at night to procreate, and that was about it. You didn't need much from your spouse. So there wasn't much pressure on you. You could easily be married to a lot of different people. 
Because you didn't have to negotiate who did chores. That was just defined. You didn't have to have somebody who was a good listener. You had your own friends that could do that. You had that extended family group to do that. You didn't have to jive on parenting styles or negotiate discipline because your extended family would have told you how to parent and, and would have done a lot of that disciplining. Like I say, less choice, but less pressure. So it's hard to sit here in America today where we pick our spouses ourselves from the internet or the club or the book group or, you know, wherever, and, uh, and um, you know, and try to look back into the Old Testament for marriage advice. We're asking questions of those books that those books are not asking. Things like, how do I balance work and family with my husband? Uh, how do we decide how to divide the labor how do I find emotional support from my spouse? How do we improve communication on our day-to-day -day issues? How do we negotiate matters of finances and child discipline? Those aren't questions the Old Testament asks. So you're not going to find answers to them in the Old Testament. The Old Testament deals with marriage as a property exchange, primarily often with women being often being treated as part of that property exchange, and men being the owners and guardians of them. And there really isn't a nicer way to put that. Marriage is about a contract between families. So disputes about marriage are also property and family honor disputes, and that's where the Old Testament does tend to step in, to provide some answers for how to manage and handle those disputes so they don't escalate. Here's one example. It's called Leverite marriage. That's the fancy name for it. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. When brothers reside together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage, and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." Now this sounds bizarre to us, because we don't live in that world. Remember, marriage is a contract between families to produce heirs to protect property, and family honor. And that contract is still valid, even if the husband dies, say in a war, farming accident. The woman is still dependent on that late husband's family since she can't just go out and get a job. And her parents, her parents were promised children out of this deal. And they probably had to pay for a dowry to get her married so they paid good money for a child from that family. And the solution, while it seems really strange to us, it makes perfect sense to them. You make the next oldest brother marry her. Then she gets her kids with that family and the contract is still honored. Does it say anything about her liking the guy? No, no one cares about that. This is about contracts not about your personal happiness. 
And it, it continues. It gets better. Deuteronomy 25, 7 and 8. But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, then his brother widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. So this was something of a communal concern. The whole village got involved. Why? Because when families didn't honor contracts, families could feud, and that could turn ugly. And so it was in everybody's interest to avoid a war between families, to avoid a clan war. So what did they do? They got all the old fogies out at the gate, and they usually act as judges. That was a common thing. Now, don't underestimate this. The affair that seemed like it was just a family affair is now public, and the reputation of your, you and your whole family is on the line because now everyone in town can see, especially the people with the money and the power making the decisions. It goes on, starting at verse 8. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, This is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. We're probably all shaking our heads wondering, what in the world? What in the world is going on here? The woman confronts him in front of everyone in town, especially those elders, and demands her right to be married to the brother? Well, the alternative is she has to go back to her family for support. Again, couldn't get her own job, so she would now be another mouth to feed. Or she'd be out on the street. So there's a lot at stake here. And if the guy's stubborn, she takes off his sandal and spits in his face in front of everyone. And that's a major humiliation for him and his whole family. And so then they change his family name. Just to, just to keep the shame going for generations, the elders change his family name to him whose sandal was pulled off. Now the whole family has been humiliated, and the guy's kids will be humiliated. So they take these contracts seriously. Even today, to throw a shoe at someone in the Middle East is a huge insult. Imagine in a patriarchal culture like that, to have a woman stand up in front of everyone and do that to you, spit on your face, pull off your shoe, your family, if you're that brother, would probably not want that dishonor upon them. So they pressure you to step up and do the right thing. Weird? Of course. But it solves the problem of honoring contracts in marriage. The whole Old Testament looks at marriage largely this way. 
It's a contract between families. And when you mess with someone else's wife, the concern is not so much what the woman thinks, but how it affects the contract. It's why they punish adultery so harshly, uh, even with stoning. If I'm the father and I made a deal with this family for a wife with kids and she goes off with some other guy, then the kids might not be his and that's dishonor on our family. That's violating the exclusive rights to reproduction that were arranged and paid for. So caught in adultery, you've potentially started a family feud. And the solution in Deuteronomy was then to stone her. So the message is sent, don't violate that family agreement. I'm so glad we don't follow all those Deuteronomy laws anymore. But we could go on. There's many more like it in Deuteronomy. They all revolve around that same premise of, of what to do when somebody has violated the agreement. How, do, how is it to be handled by the community to prevent it escalating into a feud? And so there's honestly not a lot of great marriage advice that you're going to get from the Old Testament for our lives today. Our questions are so different. Our problems are so different. Our assumptions are so different. And even though we look on their way with shock, they would look on our way with a certain amount of that too. They would see the stress we go through trying to support ourselves completely without extended family, without all that community support, without straightforward rules and expectations for parenting, without the fixed same-sex fellowship and support that they have built in automatically, support that you don't have to create by initiating it yourself. And they would wonder how we do it. They would wonder how we expect our spouses to be emotional support and income and housework and childcare and friendship, and they would wonder how we don't collapse from the weight of trying to do it all ourselves. And maybe they'd have a point, at least a bit, that maybe we do try to do too much ourselves, that we don't understand the amount of support you really need to maintain a marriage to maintain a family, to raise kids, to stay married. So we do it differently. And, and we can appreciate that. And I do appreciate that. I think the benefits of what they had are not that great that it justifies all the other stuff. All the rules, the stoning, the restrictions, on and on and on. But on the other hand, we could learn a good lesson about trying to create communities. Maybe we can do that in our church. Maybe we can do that in our own Christian, uh, Christian organizations. Of finding ways to be for each other that support that they would have built in. Because be being married and having a family, it takes a lot. And it takes a lot out of us. But fortunately, we aren't alone in that. So, that's, what, uh, that's about as much as you're going to get about Old Testament, from the Old Testament about marriage. So, this is the end of our series. We'll be picking up with another, we'll be picking up with another series. Uh, next week's going to be Pentecost, so uh, thank you all for tuning in. God bless.